0: Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance, and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. Father, as we turn the pages of Scripture to Second Thessalonians, as we hear the counsel and the love that Paul pours out on paper to this church, we we pray, God, that you would hear, or we would hear, uh, in His words, Your love for Your church. Your church in the world, and God, for your specific local church here at Pleasant Ridge, God, help us hear your love for us, your mercy to us. Point us to your Son, who's our only hope. We pray that you would speak now, and we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I have here on the pulpit with me a copy of Edward Gibbon's classic book, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, It's a famous work, and I brought it in this morning because I wanted to show you, uh, as you know, that with any modern book, you can open up the front of the book, and within the first two or three pages, you can discover who wrote the book and where it was published and when it was published uh, on the title page. You open up to the title page of this book, and you discover, obviously, that it was written by Edward Gibbon. Uh, It was written originally, published originally in 1776. Uh, This particular copy that I'm holding was published by Penguin Classics and it was published in the year 2000, New York City. You can find out uh, quite a bit about where a book is coming from just by turning and opening to the title page. You can find the Library of Congress information and so on. That's important whenever you read a book. And I share that with you this morning because it's also true that Paul's letters tend to come with a title page. If you turn to the first few verses of each of the letters of Paul, you find Paul's own version of the title page and the publishing details. He always lists himself as the author. Uh, he always lists the recipients of the letter, in this case, the Church of the Thessalonians. Sometimes he gives you some other notes about the publication, maybe where it happened. Usually he's writing from prison, it seems, when he does tell us where he's writing from. Occasionally he gives a few other details. In this particular book, the author is Paul, uh, apparently with the help of Sylvanus and Timothy. The recipients are the church of the Thessalonians. The publishers are God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? We, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, write to you, the Thessalonians, and how do we do it? We don't do it by Penguin Publishers. We do it in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's title page. And that's important when you read any book that you know who's writing and who he's writing to. It might help you know how those folks relate to you and how then Paul's instructions might relate to you. So Paul's title page there in verse 1. But sometimes when you're browsing the bookshelves at Joseph Beth or at Barnes & Noble and you're looking at a book, you want a little bit more information than you can find on the title page. You want a little bit more than the name of the writer and the publisher and the place that it was published. And so what do you do? You usually pick up the book and you turn it over to the back. Or if it's a hardback, you open up to the inside on one of the inside flaps of the cover. And you can usually find a little short section called About the Author, can't you? You can read a paragraph or two, giving some biographical information about the author. Maybe you read a little synopsis of why he wrote the book and when he wrote the book or what the reason was. And what I want to do this morning, drawing not from 2 Thessalonians but from 1 Thessalonians and from the book of Acts, is give you a little bit of an about the author or a little bit of a blurb that you might find on the back cover of the book. So if Penguin were to come out with the Penguin Classics edition of Paul's 2 Thessalonians, what might they put on the back cover? And I wrote a little blurb. If if they ever want to publish this, they can call me and they can put this on the back. But here's here's the blurb on the back of 2 Thessalonians, if you get it in the bookstore. In the year 49 A.D., the Apostle Paul, once a rabid persecutor of the church, packed his bags and set out on his second journey as a Christian missionary. That's shocking enough to make you want to read. After passing through Israel and then Lebanon and then Assyria, modern-day Assyria, he made his way westward across what we now know as Turkey. For you, westward, I guess is this way, across modern-day Turkey. And by 51 AD, he set sail to Greece. When he landed at Greece, he preached successfully but briefly a campaign in the uh, metropolitan city of Thessalonica, But that campaign turned for the worse after only three weeks, it seems, of preaching. Paul uh, was run out of town by an angry mob of religious zealots who didn't like that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And so now a few days travel away in Corinth. Paul sits down and he writes originally 1 Thessalonians to comfort the church of the Thessalonians. And then he writes shortly after 2 Thessalonians. And in this book, he rebukes some of the people for their laziness. He answers the questions that they have about the end times. People always have questions about the end times. And Paul answers their questions, and he also seeks to comfort them because they're still undergoing great persecution. That's a little bit of a quick summary of how Paul and the Thessalonians got tangled together. Now let me fill in a few more of the details about this particular book. Paul's preaching stint, as I said in Thessalonica, seems to have only been about three weeks. You can read that in Acts chapter 17. When the riots forced Paul to flee to another city, you can imagine, having only preached three weeks, that there was so much more that still had yet been said. So much more counsel and leadership that he wanted to give to this infant church in Thessalonica. You imagine trying to share the gospel with a coworker who's never heard of Jesus before, and imagine how much or how little you could actually share in three weeks if you were never going to see them face to face again. That's what happened with Paul. And so he's sitting in Corinth, and he's worrying about the Thessalonians. And the first thing he does is he sends his trusted assistant, Timothy, to check on them and to encourage them. And Timothy comes back with a good report, and then Paul sends them a letter. We call it 1 Thessalonians, to encourage them, to speak to them about the hope of Jesus' coming. That's one of the main themes of the letter, 1 Thessalonians, isn't it? The blessed hope. And so he writes to them. He encourages them to follow the Lord. He encourages them to remember that Jesus is coming soon and that the persecution won't last forever. So far, so good. But within a brief time, somewhere between First and Second Thessalonians, someone had taken the ball and run a little bit too far with it in Thessalonica. In other words, someone had taken Paul's teaching on the second coming of Christ that we looked at a week ago, and they had twisted it and exaggerated the imminence of Christ's return, the soon coming of Christ. They had exaggerated that to the point that some of the people in Thessalonica began to believe that Christ had already come. And they had missed out. They'd been left behind. You see that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 of Second Thessalonians. And other people, because of this exaggerated teaching on Jesus is coming any day now, thought, well, Jesus is coming any day now, so I might as well just quit my job, chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, store up a few canned goods and sit out on my patio watching the eastern sky. So there was chaos in this church. Some of the people were afraid they'd been left behind, and they were weighed down with despair. And other people had quit their jobs and they were weighing everyone else down by being busybodies and by mooching endlessly off of everyone else's benevolence. So there were big problems. You can imagine the kind of bickering that might have been going on, the fear, the tears, and so on. This church in Thessalonica was in desperate need of some wise apostolic counsel. So Paul writes this book to answer all these problems that are going on in the church. So that's kind of the blurb on the back of the book. But I want you to turn back to the inside, turn back to 2 Thessalonians now, the inside of the book, and you remember that when you're looking at a book, you turn past the title page, and very quickly uh, one of the next things you come to is usually the preface. What is the preface? It's usually a brief word from the author to the reader explaining why he wrote the book, how he hopes it will be used, how it should be read, how it should be understood, and so on. Just a brief word introducing the book. Now, most of us, when we read a book, what do we do? We skip right past the preface because we want to get to chapter 1, and we don't think that the preface or the forward and those kinds of things are very important. Many of us do. that. That's a terrible habit, by the way, just in any book reading. Read the preface. The author wrote it for a reason. But many of us skip past it, and I think many of us continue that error when we read Paul's letters. Paul's letters always begin, as I said, with a title page of sorts, introducing himself and telling us who he's writing to. In this case, again, it's verse 1, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he always goes on from his title page, his brief introduction, to a sort of preface. And it's usually very similar to what we find in verse 2 here. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, when we read Paul, we're tempted to just blow right past these initial greetings, especially if we've read Paul's letters numerous times. We always hear him say, Paul and Timothy or Paul and Silas or Paul and whoever, to the church at X, grace to you and peace. And we see that again when we come here and we think, well, Paul always says that, just blow right past it. In fact, the phrase grace to you and peace that's there in verse 2 is at the beginning of 10 of Paul's 13 letters. So we almost take it for granted. But I want just to pause this morning and tell you why I believe that the Thessalonians would not have taken verse 2 for granted. They wouldn't have hurried on into verse 3 or verse 5 as we might be tempted to do. Think about Thessalonica. Picture yourself in Thessalonica in 52 AD or thereabouts. The city is simmering like a pressure cooker with religious tension, isn't it? There's been this riot, they've run Paul out of town, and you're meeting in church on Sunday morning and you never know when a riot's going to gather outside of the building where you're meeting for church. You never know when the prayer meeting's going to be interrupted by people coming in with clubs to arrest you. And perhaps if you're one of the believers, you've received threats from your neighbors, maybe even your family members because of your newfound faith. It's a very difficult place to be a Christian. Everyone is against you. And then add to the external pressures the fact that the church, as we said, is experiencing no small amount of internal turmoil. Remember, some people are refusing to pull their weight financially. And so the church is burdened down. And other people are sitting in the Sunday school class telling everyone that Christ has already come and we've missed it. And so the place is in an uproar. There's confusion. There's despair. There's contention happening. All of these things are threatening to ruin the church. And that's where you sit in a Sunday morning service. But you come in one Sunday morning, and one of the elders who's in charge of the service that day stands up to read the latest post from Paul. And so you sit up in your chair, and you're listening intently, and you hear Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saying, yes, that's us. And then verse 2 is read. And he says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How would you hear that if you had been living in Thessalonica? I think you would hear the word peace. I think the word peace in verse 2 would jump off the page at you like the word rain would stand out from the weather forecast like a neon sign on the back page of the San Diego Union Tribune if it appeared there tomorrow. Rain in San Diego. Everyone's listening. Rain in Cincinnati? Okay. Okay. We had a dry summer, but now it's rained a lot. It's going to rain tomorrow. Rain in San Diego, everyone's ears perk up. Peace in Cincinnati, okay. Let's get to verse 3. But if you're in Thessalonica, where there's pressure from the outside and pressure from the inside, and you never know if the church is going to implode or explode, the word peace says something to you. I want you to think about what it might say to you. Don't skip over verses in the Bible. Every single verse is important. And Verse 2 was a breath of fresh air, surely to the Thessalonian people. Grace to you and peace. Not just peace from Paul. Paul's not saying, I hope that everything goes well with you. He's saying grace to you and peace from God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God has good things in mind for you Thessalonians. Jesus has not forgotten you. Peace is going to be your portion. We need to hear that the way they would have heard it. A harrowed church. hears the word peace. And I wonder if anyone in this room is feeling a little bit harrowed this morning. Maybe no one is standing outside your door with spears and shields, but I wonder if any of you feel desperate this morning or afraid this morning or frustrated this morning or grieved this morning. And perhaps... What you need to hear this morning is not for someone to skip right over verse 2 and get into verse 3, but you simply need to hear verse 2. Grace to you and peace. Not peace from the pastor, but peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is saying to the Thessalonians, yes, the fires may still rage. No, the floodwaters of grief and anxiety may not recede quickly. But, Isaiah 43 too, God says, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not consume you. That's peace from God the Father. And there's also peace from the Lord Jesus Christ, who says in effect in Isaiah 53, verse 5, the chastisement for your peace fell upon me. And so He can say grace to you. God is no longer angry with you. And He can say peace to you because He has taken on His back the punishment that you deserve. There's peace to be offered in the Gospel, isn't there? Peace of mind, peace with God. Maybe not peace on earth while we live here, but there is an inner peace and there is this great peace with our Lord that we have through the Gospel. So if you're struggling this morning with grief, or anxiety or frustration or fear or whatever it may be, then just stop for a moment at verse two. Stop there and take a rest. Meditate for a little bit today, sometime on Paul's preface. Don't skip the preface. And hear God the Father offering grace to you in peace. And lay your lap, lay your head in the lap of a heavenly Father who's got the whole world in his tender, compassionate hands. And hear the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 2, offering grace to you and peace. And place your hand in His hand and feel the scars where iron stakes were driven into His flesh to drive home the fact that the punishment for your peace has been laid upon Him. Rest in the God of peace. Maybe that's all that some of you need to take home this morning. It's just Paul's preface But we are going to move on uh, in his book. And we're going to return one more time to our analogy of a a published book. And I want you to imagine you you read the title page. You read the preface. um, But before you dive into chapter 1, there's sometimes one more thing to notice in a book. The acknowledgments. The acknowledgments. Don't breeze past those either. They're interesting. They're helpful. To read. Acknowledgements are like little thank you notes tucked into the beginning of a book. That's what they are. And so the writer may list those who helped him research or those who helped him edit or those who helped him index the book. He may thank um, those who encouraged him along the way. He may thank those who fronted the money to publish the book. He may thank his wife or his kids or his high school English teacher. All sorts of people that the author wants to thank. And it's important. You get a look at the heart of the author when you see the people that he thanks. And when you open up the letters of Paul, again, you find this section there. You find the title page. You find the preface. You find the acknowledgments. Paul almost always has a section where he's giving thanks to certain people and thanks to God. Sometimes he makes mention of a secretary who wrote the letter at his dictation. Sometimes he thanks the recipients of the letter for the way he sees that they're obeying God and the warmth that they have shown him. And he almost always has a sentence of two of special thanksgiving for God, particularly for his work in the people who are receiving the letter. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's acknowledgments come to us in verses 3 and 4. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. So he thanks God for the Thessalonians. We ought to give thanks to God for you. And then in verse 4, Paul pays, the Thess- pays tribute to the Thessalonians themselves. In effect, what he's saying there in verse 4 is, Everywhere I go and preach, I'm able to use you all as a sermon illustration. Wouldn't that be great? Not for our pride, but because we we're walking with the Lord so closely. That wherever someone went to preach, someone who had visited here and preached to us, they could go to other places and say, let me tell you about Pleasant Ridge and how well they're doing in this area or that. And that's what Paul is saying to them. He thanks God for them and then he thanks them for their faithfulness to God so we read verses three and four and we read the acknowledgments and they seem warm and fuzzy to us and again we may be eager to speed on our way and go he thanks god he thanks them he always does this let's get on with the book and next week we're going to do that but before we do it i want us to take a close look at the reasons why paul thanks them paul doesn't just write verses one through four because he needs a way to start the book he could just start talking about god but he includes verse 1 for a reason and he includes verse 2 for a reason and he includes verses 3 and 4 for a reason and the Holy Spirit does as well and there's something to glean. Why did Paul thank God for these people? Why could Paul boast in these people? And what might we learn from them? I think you'll see if you look closely at Paul's acknowledgments that he commended the Thessalonians for three outstanding Christian virtues. Maybe the three outstanding Christian virtues. If you look at verses 3 and 4, Paul commends them for faith and for hope and for love. And I want us to think about those three this morning before we finish. Faith, hope, and love. First, faith. He says, verse 3, we are always to give thanks to God for you because your faith is greatly enlarged. He commends them for their faith. Can he commend us for our faith? Well, let's think about it. He gives them this wonderful tribute, but what does he have in mind? What does he mean by faith? Your faith is greatly enlarged. What does that mean? Is that just religious mambo-jumbo? To some of you, it may sound like that. Okay, Paul is just throwing out some words because it sounds good, and that's what I would do if I had to give a speech as well. I want to thank all the people who have helped me along the way, and I want to thank you all for your encouragement, and I want to thank the academy as well. No, that's not what he's doing. Why is he speaking about the word faith? Well, this is an important word to Paul. It's not a throwaway word. What does he mean? Well, let's get one more thumbnail sketch of this author, Paul. And to get that, I want you to turn back a few pages to the book of Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So turn back just a few pages to the book of Philippians 3, 1 through 9. And if there was ever a place where Paul gives us a little bit of, about the author, it would be in Philippians 3, 1 through 9. And here's what he says to a different church. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more... "...circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Paul commends these people for their faith. And in Philippians 3, Paul gives us some autobiography that helps us understand what he means by the word faith. How did he define faith? Well, the word that jumps out for me from Philippians 3 is the word confidence. Confidence. Faith is confidence. Because he says in Philippians 3, 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to say, rather, our faith is in Christ. So faith in Christ is the opposite of confidence in the flesh. Faith is confidence in Jesus. Anything else is confidence in myself. And Paul says, listen, I was a scrupulous Pharisee. I did all the little things right. But I put no confidence in my righteousness. And he says to them, I was an up-and-coming religious superstar. I was one of the guys that everybody looked to. But I put no confidence in my religion. He tells us, as to the righteousness which comes by the law, if anyone could obey the law fully, it was me. If anyone got right with God by obeying the Ten Commandments, it was me, he says. But I put no confidence in my good works. And, he says, I had a noble pedigree. I was an Israelite. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. One of the two tribes that remained faithful all those years when the other ten went away. But I put no confidence in my family's religious history. He says, if anyone had a chance to put confidence in what he had accomplished, it was me. And yet, I don't put confidence in any of that. All of it, he says, is rubbish, garbage, compared to putting my confidence in Jesus. And so he says, all my faith, all my confidence, verse 9, is in Christ. That's the definition of faith in Paul's mind. It's a renunciation of confidence in yourself and a placing of confidence in Christ. An utter dependency and trust in Christ. And with that definition, then he says to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 3, I commend you, Thessalonians, because your faith is greatly enlarged. In other words, your confidence in Christ over against your confidence in yourself is greatly enlarged. You're growing more and more to depend upon Jesus and not upon yourself. So I have to ask you this morning, if your faith Is greatly enlarged. Is it true of you that you find yourself trusting yourself less and less? Is that true? Are you less and less willing to talk about and more than that to gain religious comfort from your uprightness and your commitment and your giving and your discipline and your reputation? Are you less and less confident in those things and more and more desirous to speak about and rest in Christ's righteousness? and Christ's love, and Christ's atonement, and Christ's sufficiency. More and more confident in Christ, less and less confident in what I can do myself. You've been coming to church all these weeks, or months, or years. But you have to ask, is it merely my religion that is greatly enlarged? Or is it really my confidence in Christ that is greatly enlarged? He commends them first of all for their faith. Secondly, he commends them for their love. Their love, he says, verse 3, the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. This is another wonderful compliment. A noteworthy compliment. A compliment worthy of imitation. And even more so when you look closely at the way Paul structures his sentence. He's very specific about what he means. And I want you to notice, first of all, that he's speaking about love, he says, for one another. The love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Paul isn't referring here to their altruism. He isn't referring here to nice projects that they may have done in the community. He's not referring to them sending money to the mission field. All those things are important and have their place But that's not what Paul is commending here. Here, Paul is referring to the fact that the church was becoming a family. Really, a family. Not just a gathered group of people. Not just people who knew one another. Not just people who were friendly. Not just people who liked to hear the word of God. But a family. They were serving and caring for one another. We don't have a picture of what that looked like in Thessalonica, but we do have a picture of it in one of those churches that Paul used to persecute, namely the church at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46. We come to these verses again and again because this is so much what God wants for us. Listen. And about the church in Jerusalem. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now those are specific things. That's not pie in the sky, everybody was a nice person. And those kinds of things are happening here at Pleasant Ridge. They are. Some of you can attest to that. But they don't mainly happen on Sunday mornings. They happen on Saturday afternoons, they happen on Friday evenings, they happen on Wednesday nights. They happen all throughout the rest of the week when we're looking at one another and sharing meals together instead of just looking at me. And so I want to say to you that it's the inconvenient moments and it's the unplanned moments that go into making a family, not just the Sunday morning service. And I want to ask you if you're part of that. Could Paul write of you, your love toward one another, not your kindness, not your giving, but your caring for this group of people that sits all of us within a few feet of one another. Is that kind of love growing for you? I hope so. And I want you to notice also that Paul stresses the personal quality of their love for one another. He says the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Each one of you. Now, in Greek, the emphasis on the individual is even more obvious. Because in the Greek, he repeats this idea of each one three different times. He could just use the Greek word that means each. Therefore, the love of each of you increases. And that would get the the point across, wouldn't it? Each person loves one another. But he uses three different words, all of which uh, speak of the singularity, the individuality of their love. And if it weren't such poor English, you could translate this Greek sentence something like this. The love of each one of you, all of you, individually, for one another grows ever greater. Because Paul sticks all three words in there. Each, all, individually. They're all there. As if Paul wanted us to sit up and notice that he's not saying, you Thessalonians are such a loving people. Friendly and welcoming when everyone comes. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something more than that. It's almost as if the person, whoever it was, maybe it was Sylvanus or Timothy, but whoever it was that had come from Thessalonica now to report to Paul about how they were doing, came and along with reporting to him about the difficulties, also brought along with him the church roster and said, Paul, it's amazing. I just went down through their church roster and started jotting down the different things that are happening in people's life. Let me tell you about it. And he says to him, Andy, you know, is coordinating meals for all the widows. And Bessie has been watching Caroline's kids while she's been sick. And David's been mentoring several of the young men in the church. And Eloise, praise God, has gotten rid of her TV and started praying all day now that she's retired. She prays through the church roll every day. It's amazing, Paul, what happens in this church. The people, each one of them, all of them, individually are showing love for one another. That's the force of what Paul is saying. Each person had their role and each person was pouring their life into other people. So I have to ask you another question. If someone were to report to Paul with the membership roster of this church, what would be written beside your name? If someone had a list of the church members at Pleasant Ridge, what would be written beside your name? Would there be something specific to say about you? Are you actively involved in serving your fellow church members? Helpfully tangled up in other people's lives? Is your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room a generic she's a nice person kind of love? Or he's a really good guy kind of love? Or are you getting your apron dirty and your schedule rearranged because you're serving other people? It's an important question to ask. Paul says the love of each one of you toward one another should be growing ever greater faith love and finally hope he commends them for their hope now he doesn't use the word hope in verse 4 but he does speak to the Thessalonians of their perseverance and faith in the midst of all their persecutions and afflictions and normally when we think about enduring under trials and doing so with perseverance and faith the word that, that we use is the word hope They held up under all these difficulties because they had hope. They had hope in the Lord. Specifically, hope in what? Well, I think they had hope in the very same things that we hope in when we're facing difficulties. I think of two of them. One, they must have hoped in what we now know as Romans 8.28. Surely, they hoped in the fact that they knew that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, Paul hadn't written that verse yet, probably, but it was such an important Bible doctrine, and it is such an important Bible doctrine, that surely Paul taught that truth to them. This is one of the things that if you had three weeks, you would teach them this, especially if you know they're going to suffer. You would teach them Romans 8.28. All this stuff that's happening, God's working it for your good. He's working it for your good. And so I think they would have said, yes, we wish things were different. We look forward to the day when all of these trials will be over, but we know that these trials are not out of God's hands. Our God has a wise and loving, sovereign purpose for us, and He will work for our good, and He will work for His glory in the sufferings that we're enduring. And so I just ask you if you have that kind of hope when you're suffering. Do you suffer with a woe-is-me attitude, or do you suffer with a Romans 8.28 attitude? I don't like to suffer, but I know God is doing something good, and I can't wait to see what it is. That's what gets you through. And I think they hoped in that. That's why they were able to persevere with faith. And secondly, we know that they persevered with faith under their trials because they hoped in the coming of Christ. They hoped in the coming of Jesus. No matter how bad things got, they knew things won't always be this way. Paul had taught them that in 1 Thessalonians. That's why he wrote the letter partially. To say to them, things are difficult now, you're grieving and you're suffering, but things won't always be this way. Christ is coming. And so they could say, even if someone in our church is martyred for his faith, and perhaps that's why last week they were grieving. We know someone had died. Perhaps someone had died because they'd been martyred. And so they could say even though we're losing our lives for our faith, Jesus is going to return and 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the dead in Christ will rise. There is hope for us. And so no matter what happened, they knew Jesus was coming. They knew Jesus would wipe away every tear from their eyes. They knew that there would be no more pain or sorrow. They knew that Jesus would right all the wrongs. They knew that Jesus would avenge their blood. They knew that Jesus would come and He would bring with Him a new heaven and a new earth. In which righteousness dwells. And so they had hope. And they persevered. And they kept going when things got tough. Now are you and I facing persecution right now? Not, not really. Some of us may face a little difficulty from people who give us a hard time for our faith. But we're not facing persecution anything like what they were going through. But before some of us die, we probably will be. Because I believe that some of you God may call to be missionaries of the cross and He may send you to the remotest parts of the earth and the most hostile places on earth and you're going to need hope. And some of you are going to live long enough possibly to see the day when this country, spiritually speaking, will be the remotest parts of the earth and one of the most hostile places on the earth. Don't think that that won't happen. It will someday. And some of us may live to see it. And in those days of almost unbearable trial that some of us may live to see, we are going to need a firm conviction that Jesus is coming again. That this world is not all that there is and that these sufferings are not the end of God's story for us. We're going to need hope. And for some of you, the silver cord is going to break much sooner than that. It's very possible that some of you young or old may not live long enough to see the incoming of another crisp autumn season that sometime in the next year, some of you may have the rest of us standing over your casket. And in that dying day and in that dying hour, whenever it may be, you too are going to need hope that will not fail you then. The hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The hope that we have is found in Christ alone who died for us and who ever lives to make intercession for us and who is coming soon. To bring us home forever. So that the author of Hebrews says, this hope we have. An anchor for the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. Do you have that kind of hope? Would you like that kind of hope? It's found in banking your life on a crucified and risen and soon coming Savior.